Oh, man. Well, gosh, thank you so much for that, Phil. Thank you, everybody. The church is always, always super appreciative of us, and I'm so grateful for that. And Hey, I'll tell you what. If you guys want, you can hang out after service uh, for wine, barbecue, and toast. We're, it's on us. We've, we've got you covered. So... Um, no, thank you guys, and thank you too for, uh, thank you Tony and Global Team for the great work in Mozambique. It's, it is amazing to think that where, what, 15 years ago there was, there was, was nothing there. Uh, God has grown into something really, really significant with all the ministries that are happening, and thank you, that's all of you that do that. So, uh, God bless you on that. Uh, hey, so... Gosh, we've done a lot this morning. I feel like I should just like give a benediction and send you home, but but I won't. Um, <laughs> uh, now let's let's do some teaching here too. Uh, so I was thinking about this week. We're starting a, a new series as we're getting into Advent, uh, doing some some teachings that are kind of kind of connected to the season. But um, I was reflecting on this plumbing incident we had a while back. So I won't go into details because plumbing incidents are never pleasant in any way, shape, or form. But Kind of the, the heart of this is that we had to have this plumber come out like three, four, five times. And, and every time he, he was like, oh, I'm certain it's this. You know, this is going to do the thing. And he's under my house and he's doing all this stuff. And then he presents me with a bill and then nothing's happened. Right. It's the same thing. And he's out the next week and he's like, OK, I misdiagnosed it last time, but I know what it is. All you need is a new toilet. I'm putting in a new toilet. Here it is. And then, you know, he bills me. And then the next week it's something else. And then. Finally, I, I called a friend and I was like, I need a new plumber. You know, I don't think this guy knows what he's doing. Can you, can you send, send me somebody else? And sure enough, the, the new guy came out and diagnosed it correctly. And the, the problem was fixed. But I'm, I'm going to bet that all of you have had some form of that experience. Right? Where you've waded into an area where it's outside of your expertise. You don't have the knowledge needed to do the thing that needs to be done. And you're left wondering at the end of the day, does this guy I'm trusting even know what he's doing? And I also bet, if we're being really honest, I bet that just about everyone here could attest to times in their relationship with God where they've thought or said the same thing. Does God actually know what he's doing? Because, you know, maybe the bottom just fell out of your life. Right? And you're thinking about this God, and he's supposed to be the king of the universe and all this, but you're going, does, does he really know? And there's some part of you that's wondering. Or like you're, you're getting hit with some temptation, and you're thinking about how God is there for you in the midst of that, but you're like, I'm not going to make it through this. How can I? Does God actually know what he's doing? Or you're listening for the voice of God in the scriptures, and you come to a really hard place of obedience where the word is telling you this but all of, all of you wants this instead and you wonder is God right does he really know what he is doing and as we uh, as we start this new series in Advent just kind of hold that in the back of your mind uh, today and then uh, through Christmas Eve uh, we're going to be looking at the names of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 and if you're unfamiliar with it, the prophet Isaiah is the prophet that gets quoted most often in the New Testament, and specifically most often in relation to this coming Messiah that had been promised, this Christ that would come. And, and Jesus is described 
hundreds of years before in the book of Isaiah. And there's this one passage, Isaiah chapter 9, gets quoted uh, quite often, especially around Christmas time. And here's the heart of it. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning we're going to look at that first name, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? You know that (laughs) I read that and, and through our eyes we think maybe, okay, so God's a really good therapist, right? And he is, but that's not what this is referring to. Uh, The kind of counselor that's referred to here in Isaiah is like an advisor to a king. This would be a very important role in ancient governments, the person who advises the king on what to do. And this divine son that we're being told about in Isaiah not only is the king, but is described as also encompassing that role that is the advisor to the king. Uh, That that is, quite literally in the Hebrew that this was originally written in, it would... It would be the the wonderful planner is who this one is, the wonder planner. This is the coming king who has a plan, who has a purpose, and who implements it. This is the king that knows what he's doing. And what is this plan? Well, uh, it's it's helpful, I think it's helpful, to think of the Bible as a four-act play. And we're going to look through these sort of four movements in the scriptures that describe the plan of God. And then with each of these, there's kind of a corresponding piece that we want to tease out of of the implications for you and I. What does it mean about us as we inhabit this plan that God has? So uh, four acts in God's plan and then four truths about you and I with that. Uh, Let's pray and we'll look at the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we just pause in the season, in the midst of all the busyness that is Christmas, to remember why it is that we have Christmas in the first place. And God, we worship you. We are just so grateful for who you are, for your grace and your mercy, your kindness that leads us to repentance. We're so thankful for you sending your son Jesus to live and to die for us be raised again and invite us into a new and ever-ending life. God, would you be glorified as we worship you this morning in song and scripture and sacrament. We pray, God, that you would be lifted up, that we would see you as you are, and we would respond as those who aspire to follow you. We give you thanks. We pray you meet us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So four acts in God's plan and four truths about you and I. Act one is creation. Genesis chapter one, very beginning of the book, it says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, if you know the story, if you're familiar with this part of the biblical narrative, Genesis chapter 1 is this great lyrical poem about God as the creator. 
And each day in this poem, God shows up and he speaks into existence some other aspect of the creation, of, of the heavens above, of the skies, of the earth below, of what fills the earth, all these things. And, and each day, he declares that what he has created is good. But then on the final creating day of this creation week, on the final day, God creates people. And in these verses, what it tells us about us as people is hugely significant. It says that we are one, we're made in his image. That we are somehow like God in ways that other parts of creation are not. That there's something unique about humans as God has created them. And second, that we have a role to play in God's good creation. Right? The way that it says it in these verses is that we are to subdue the earth and to rule over it. That there is this governing role that is given to humans as part of God's creation. And, and part of the, the Hebrew that the, these verses are originally written in, and then also as you get into chapter 2, it clarifies that this ruling and subduing, this is not the ruling of domination. This is not the ruling of conquest. This is stewardship. This is us co-reigning with God and caring for what he has made in such a way that it functions properly. That we have what, what the Old Testament calls shalom. An overall sense of peace and well-being. Harmony. As the world works the way that it should. Uh, obviously in our sin, too often we have exploited what God has created rather than nurtured it. But that doesn't change the reality of God's plan. God's plan is that we as humans would be co-regents with God. His understudies, his governors, as you will, the king's representatives on earth, nurturing the good things that he has made. That's where the plan of God starts. And with that, so for you and I, truth number one, this is a wordy one. I've got to quote Dallas Willard on this because I just like the way that he puts it. This is a philosopher that you hear about a lot. So greatly influenced by him. But truth number one is this. You are an unceasing being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's a mouthful. Kind of take that in. You are an unceasing being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Friends, in other words, you were meant to walk with God, to enjoy His love, and out of that relationship to partner with Him in what He is doing in the world. That you were made for more than birth and school and work and death. That there is more to our existence than that. There is a purpose in who you are. By virtue of being made by God, being made in His image, there is an eternal destiny that you are made to live into. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Uh, in the, the small group that my wife and I are part of, we've been going through this wonderful study called One at a Time. And kind of the heart of this is that we are learning to pay attention to what Jesus is doing in us and in the world around us on an ongoing basis. And, uh, and it, it's kind of living out this first truth, yeah? 
This idea that we have this destiny, that God, this is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 5, that God is at work in the world and that we are invited to join him in that. And it's been really cool as, as we do this group. So uh, every week uh, when we start the group, we ask, okay, how have you seen God shown up this, this week in ways that you're invited into? And as people are getting better and better at thinking this way and looking for these things, like every week there's stories about you know, educators who are, are having these experiences with students where God just kind of custom makes the situation or the parent where this parent needs a word of encouragement or needs an advocate to act on their behalf. And we know in that moment, God is inviting me into this. Stories week after week of folks who uh, all of a sudden people that for years they've needed to reconcile with are just brought into their path and kind of dropped there. And they're like, oh my gosh, God is inviting me into this very frightening moment where I have an opportunity to make right what's been wrong. Uh, opportunities to be generous uh, with folks in need coming across their path. Opportunities to extend grace to those who need a word of grace. And friends, understand, this is what you and I are made for. This is what it means when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God has come. This is what he's talking about. We're invited to enter into the presence of God now, not just in heaven, but now, and to experience the life of God working through us in this world that he loves. You, friends, you are an unceasing being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Can you receive this? Can you receive this as something that's true about you? That's act one. And that's that first implication. Here's act two. Act two isn't quite as much fun, but here it is. Act two is fall. Act two is fall. Uh, Point a, a verse out of Genesis 3. It says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, now, you've got to read the whole chapter. There's a lot going on in this, but it's just kind of a snippet. Here we have this episode where the man and woman, they've been created for a relationship with God, right? And created with all this purpose in mind. And they're tempted here to disobey God, and they do. And we see here something shifts in their relationship with him. It says their eyes are open, and all of a sudden they're, they're aware of their guilt. They're experiencing shame. They have this instinct where it's like, I've got to cover myself. I've got to get away from this divine being that's been created for them to walk in a love relationship with. It's called the fall. And it's sin marring God's good creation and marring us as part of that creation. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is truth number two. You are flawed, but glorious, and you're loved. You are created in God's image. That doesn't change. You are a work of glory and beauty. You are loved and you are deeply valuable. 
But also, and I'm sorry to break this to you if you don't know it already, but you are kind of screwed up. I suspect you probably already know that, but this is part of the reality. You are glorious and deeply loved, but you're also flawed, also stained by sin. Uh, one way we see this played out, one among many, and I know you'll relate to this, but, but there's situations in our lives all the time where part of you knows uh, that something is wrong. You know that something is morally wrong. And you want to do it anyway. There's something in us that is drawn towards sin. And that's part of the fall. That's part of the way that God's creation in us has been marred. And we need divine help for that. Uh, There's an old, old story. Kind of a once upon a time story about these two brothers. Uh, They're two princes. And they're always competing over everything, right? As brothers are prone to do And one of them makes a bet with the other that he can train a cat to be a perfect servant in the household. Any of you who own cats, we do, know that this guy is going to lose that bet. But he thinks, okay, this is, this is a, a bet worth taking. So he says, says, this is the bet. I can train this cat perfectly. And so he summons all the resources of the kingdom. He brings in the best animal handlers to do all this. And he trains this cat to the point where the cat will wear human clothing. The cat walks around in a vest. And then the cat, he trains the cat to actually walk around on two legs so he can shuffle around the house and actually carry things. And so on the day that the bet is supposed to, to be played out and see, okay, did he win or not, he has the trained cat come walking in, wearing his vest, shuffling on two feet, carrying a little tiny tray of tea. And the cat serves to the other brother a cup of tea. And everyone in the court watching this are amazed at what's been done with this cat. And so the brother says, what do you think? Do I win the bet? And the other brother says, well, we'll see. And he takes out of his pocket a little tiny box and opens it up. And three mice go running out to the courtyard. And tea is everywhere, and the saucer is broken, and the cat is ripping through his vest and chasing after the mice. And the brother says, okay, I think you won. (laughs) But here's the thing. There is something in the nature of a cat that makes it a very difficult animal to train. And even if you train it up, there are going to be limitations to what you can do to change the catness of that cat. And because of the fall, friends, for you and I, sin has become something that's deeply embedded in our nature, and we can't simply train it away. Uh, we, you know, we can develop self-control in this area or not, but there is going to be a part of us that is always in need of rescue, that we can never fix by ourselves. That is the result of the fall. We are still glorious. We are still loved. But we are also deeply flawed. Now, does this mean that God's plan is ruined? Far from it. And even in that same passage in Genesis 3, we see that something more is coming. That God saw this fall coming as well and planned accordingly as well. We have in Genesis 3 the, the first prophecy of the Messiah, the first hint at the salvation that is to come. 
Genesis 3.15, God says to the tempter, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, he's saying the Messiah will come. The devil will wound him, but the Messiah will ultimately prevail. Devil defeated, and the curse being undone. The wonderful counselor still has a plan, even as life happens in the midst of it. That takes us to Act 3. Act 3 in the scripture story is redemption. And there's a host of scriptures in the New Testament that talk about how God's plan is revealed. We're going to look at one of those from 2 Timothy 1. It says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So friends... The New Testament is all about this. It's about the fact that we have been redeemed. And that that word is not originally a religious word. It's a word that comes from the slave market. When you bought someone out of slavery, that's the term that you use. You are redeeming them. And the scriptures teach us that God has bought us back from sin and death and Satan. And significantly, as Paul says here, it's not because of anything that we have done. It's because God is gracious. And because he loves us. And did you see the aspect of the plan here in these these verses? It's very interesting. He says God did this because of his own purpose and grace. In other words, this was part of the plan. This was a purpose that God had. And then then this part. This is super weird. So if we can put it up there again. So it says that this happened. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of of time. God knew. God knew that there would be a need for Jesus to die for our sins before the beginning of time. That's his plan. It says it's now revealed. It's always been there. It's it's been unseen, but now it is revealed. Right? Maybe think about it this way. So, uh, remember when we, uh, we had to endure the curse of driving on freeways without the benefit of a smartphone, right? And you get into traffic, and all you know is that you're stuck in traffic. And you might be there for minutes, or for hours, or sometimes it felt like for weeks. It could be a long time, and you're so glad that you've got that Nature's Valley Green Hole Bar in the car, because you might perish without that. Who knows how long it will be. Now, with our phones, you know, you get in traffic and you look and it's, it's actually pretty accurate. It's saying, this is how long you're going to be stuck in, this, in the red line on the map before it goes orange, before it goes green. But back in those days, when you're just stuck and you don't know for how long, uh, the only way to know how long it possibly might be would be to put on news radio and wait for the traffic helicopter flying overhead to say, oh, there's a crash up ahead, and so this is what you can expect. But when you are in the traffic, when you are in the car, and you're on the freeway, you just don't know 
what's coming next. And you don't know how long this experience is going to last until you get some help from the helicopter that's able to see the whole picture. And when scripture talks about God's plan, it's something sort of like that. You and I live in the here and now. It's kind of like being in your car on the freeway and all you can see is what's in front of you. And you're in the middle of this thing and you don't know how long the thing is going to last. But God's in the helicopter. He knows. He knows. He's able to see the entirety of it, even though you and I are not. Now, hold that. Hold that picture. It's going to be useful in a minute. But truth number three as we think about redemption. Truth number three is this. It's that you are worth saving. You are worth saving. Uh, I have a friend who, um, uh, when he was a kid, when he was pretty young, uh, his family moved into a new apartment. And really sadly, they discovered after they were all settled there and everything that uh, this apartment was not going to let them keep the family dog. And they had to give away the family pet. And everyone in the family was just devastated by this. But my friend especially, and young as he was, he didn't understand all the implications of this. And the question that he asked to his parents was, if, if we move somewhere and, and they say that I'm not allowed to be here anymore, will you give me away too? And in, in his little mind, this totally made sense. You know, for his parents, they're just, they're appalled at this. They're like, are you kidding me? Give you away? I would, you know, I'd give away my arms before I gave you away. But he couldn't see that. He didn't know his worth. Sometimes you and I don't know our worth either. You are worth saving. God knows. God, this is part of his plan all along. And before you ever came on the scene, he knew everything about you. He knew every way that you would fail, every way that you would betray your commitment to him, every way that you would let him down. And his reply to that knowledge is, you are worth saving. You're worth it, friends. The third act in God's great story is redemption. And the implication for you and I, we're worth redeeming. We're worth the cost. One more act in God's story. Act four we call restoration. Right? So if you're keeping track here, we've got creation and fall, redemption, and then restoration. And for this, we're going to go all the way to the back of the book, go to the book of Revelation, and it's covered in other books in the Bible too. Uh, but the truth here is that not only will we be redeemed, but all of creation is going to be set right as well. Creation itself is being restored also, uh, and, and this also is part of the work that God is doing in the world and part of the plan he's had from the beginning. So Revelation, if you ever read any in, in the book of Revelation, a uh, lot of imagery, most of it super confusing. We're, we're not going to unpack all of what we're looking at today, but in these verses we're looking at, I want you to just note this. That Jesus, in these verses, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. And he's portrayed as this lamb, sacrificial lamb, who has been slain 
but is now alive again. Listen to these verses. Revelation 7, it says, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then there's this, it says, For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So just sit with that for a moment. The great Lamb, the Lamb of God, as John describes him in his Gospel, the one who came to take away the sins of the world, to bear those in his body, This lamb is slain for the redemption of sins, yes? But it's more. That's just the start. All things are going to be restored. Homework, read Romans 8 this week. And the description there of how creation itself groans, waiting for redemption to fully take hold. And for God's world to be made right. For his kingdom to come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a picture of heaven and what that is beginning to look like. And then God's plan. So there's this little snippet. Throw this into about the lamb. It says, so the world's being put back right. And then it says, the lamb who was slain, and he's described this way, slain from the creation of the world. Think about that for just a second and the implications for God's plan. The lamb was slain before the creation of the world. Wasn't Jesus slain around, you know, somewhere around the year 30 AD, 33 AD? What's he talking about here? Slain before the creation of the world. And the last verse, right, that 2 Timothy verse, we learn God's grace was given us before the beginning of time. Here we're hearing that Jesus was killed on our behalf before the world began. How can this be? Makes your mind hurt a little bit, yes? It should. But again, think about it, think about it this way. So, if we picture human history as, as a line, right? And you'll remember from 10th grade geometry class uh, that a line actually has no end. It goes on forever and ever. Right? So, history does have a starting point. But then from that point, it just goes. Technically, that's a ray or a vector or something. Tenth grade was a long time ago. But this line goes on forever, out further than you can see. And you and I inhabit one little space on that line. There's this tiny little blip on that line that we would call world history. And there's a little blip within the blip that would be the 20th and 21st centuries and a smaller blip within that blip that would be your life and my life. And we inhabit this little place on the line. Now for you and I, living in the spot, living in the place that we do, inhabiting the time and space that God has ordained for us, all we really know experientially is that place. We can, we can look backwards and we can remember as best as we can the moments that have come along that timeline before us. 
but we can't know what's coming ahead of us. Now God, again, uh, God doesn't exist within time. God created time. It is separate from him. And we could say that God exists above it, or if you will, God exists above this line. And from there you can see the totality, not just of human history, but of all history. And from that vantage point, it might make sense to say, this lamb was slain before the beginning of the world. That God's grace was extended to you before creation. Because living outside of and above the line, all time becomes same. Yes? Or if, or if you prefer, let's just go back to our helicopter. God is in the helicopter, and we are in the traffic. But friends, understand this, and this is important for how we live this out. Understand that we are bound by time and space in a way that God is not. And this is why the scriptures can speak about the plan of God in the way that it does, in these dramatic and sweeping terms. Because God is not bound by that. God is not bound. Now, in fact, four is restoration. Truth number four about you and I is this. It's that you are not yet what you will be. You are not yet what you will be. Here's how John puts it in one of his letters. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So friends, you are, right now, fully known and fully accepted. Right now, in all of your imperfections, all of it. But the story doesn't end there. The you of today is not the last version of you. There is a 2.0 coming. And God's people say, Amen. Thank goodness. Uh, those parts of you that you wish were not part of you, that impatience, that temper you can't quite get your hands around, the selfishness, the tendency to judgmentalism, all of it. Whatever it is, friends, it will not be part of your future. Part of being an apprentice of Jesus now, walking with him in the here and now, is that as we follow our rabbi, we become like him. And those, those dimensions of the fall lived out in our being that we find so difficult, they are being diminished. And eventually, John is telling us here, they will be extinguished. When we see Christ, either when he returns or when we go to be with him in death, either way, we'll find that all of those places that we need the refiner's fire to burn away, well, they will. We will be something that we are not yet now. As we think about 
So we think about God's plan. And as we prepare to respond in worship this morning, let me just throw out a couple of questions for you to consider. You know, maybe, maybe you're in a time of real struggle. And you're in a place where you don't know what's coming next and you don't know how it's going to play out and it terrifies you. Friends, know this. Know this. That the wonderful counselor, he is not surprised. He does know what you do not yet know. And he's waiting to meet you in that future that you are moving towards. Maybe you are in a season where your world has been rocked by loss. Loss of a job, loss of a loved one, or loss of a dream. And you're having trouble seeing what it looks like to put one foot in front of the other and not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. Is it going to be another loss? Is it going to be more pain? Or are you going to come out the other side of this? And right now you don't know. But friends, do you know this this morning? That our God is a wonderful counselor. That he is the wonderful planner. That he knows. That he is not surprised. That he has gotten to your future before you are getting there because he's not in it. He is above it. Friends, can you know that today as we worship him? Maybe, friends, you are reeling from failure. Personal professional, moral, relational. But friends, can you know this today? That your story is not over because you are part of a larger story. You are part of the story of a God who is above all and who is the wonderful planner. Maybe, friends, Maybe today you're in a place of compromise and you're torn. You know God's word says one thing, but you really want this other thing over here. Can you trust that God is wise enough? Can you trust that the wonderful planner knows enough about you and this world and this universe and all of history? that he's worth trusting and obeying even when we find it hard or nonsensical. Friends, this morning as we worship in this Christmas season, as we lean into uh, all that the season brings, both good and bad, know, friends, know that this God who came to save us, that he is the wonderful counselor. Let's pray together.